Hey everybody, it's Max. Just a little heads up here uh, before we listen. I just finished recording this episode and went back and listened to the audio and realized that I did not switch the input on my recording uh, to my microphone. And so it recorded off of my um, my MacBook Air. And so the audio is not very good, but I do like the, the conversation. I do like um, kind of the way that I, I put everything. So I, I'm just going to keep it. Um, so you'll just have to bear with not super great audio this time, and uh, I'll obviously fix that next time. But you know, you live and learn. It's it's uh, podcasting in quarantine before you're getting to move across to the other side of the world in two days. So it just is what it is. So with that, let's hop in. Enjoy the episode. To the Upon This Rock podcast. I'm Max Thomas. Thanks for stopping by the pod. And today we are continuing our series on reading the Bible uh, that I'm call- calling uh, Reading on the Road to Emmaus. And we'll actually get to that story from Luke 24 today. And uh, today I want to lay out what I th- and talk about what I think is what I would describe as my kind of my thesis statement or my my beginning point where I think, I think anyway, any conversation about reading the Bible uh, needs to start. Um, but uh, first, let me recap a little bit just because it's been almost two weeks now since I, I put something out and I apologize for that. I'm trying to do this every week. Uh, my wife and I and our family are getting ready to move um, right now, um, actually out of the country, move, making an international move. So you can imagine everything that uh, needs to get done that entails with that and and uh, spending time with family and things like that. So, uh, but here we are. Um, the the thing I want to kind of bring from last episode, if you haven't listened to that yet, by the way, you should go listen to it. But the thing I want to bring into the beginning of our conversation here is I made this statement, I think a couple of times in the last episode, that um, how you read the Bible matters just as much as the fact that you read the Bible. And for many of us, we grew up in a culture, and I would include myself in this, um, and this is, I'm speaking kind of in a in a broader evangelical, I mean, I grew up in charismatic context, and this is true, I think, of the, the larger movement as a whole. Um, I grew up hearing, you know, that I needed to read my Bible every day, that I should have my quiet time, my devotional time, my time with the Lord. There's a bunch of different names uh, for kind of that same idea. And it kind of it kind of made it sound almost like a, a vitamin that you take, right? Like I, I think I joked last time, kind of like a Flintstone vitamin that you should just take this every morning. It'll make your life better. And th- so there was always this, this expectation or this, um, I don't want to say demand, because I think that's that's putting too strong of a, a point on it, but it was, it was something that I was very aware that I was supposed to do. Right? Was I'm supposed to read my Bible every day because it's the right thing to do. It's the good thing to do. It's the Christian thing to do. But it didn't take me super long, and this has been my experience and why I wanted to do this series in particular. This has been my experience now as a pastor and as a Bible teacher. That's what I do for a living is, and this was, again, my experience as well, is I never got a whole ton of help from anyone 
on how to actually do that. So I would sit down at my table, I'd pull myself out of bed at six in the morning, I'd sit down at the table, and I would start reading the gospel, and I would get, you know, the gospel of John or something like that, and I'd read the story of the woman at the well, and I'd be like, okay, great, that's a great story. What I, I don't know what to do with that, or, you know, I mean, heaven forbid, if I was brave enough to enter into the Old Testament, uh, you know, then who knows? There anything is fair game. Then I would just be utterly confused. I actually joke with my students all the time, um, and it's 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 funny. I think because it's true. I joke with them that the only time that any of us really ever go into the Old Testament is to read one book, and that book is the book of you can say with me out loud, Psalms. Right? That's the only usually the only time most people ever venture into the Old Testament is to go into the book of Psalms. And uh, but I mean. Nobody's doing their devotions in Obadiah, Nahum, let alone Ezekiel or Jeremiah or anything like that. And so there was, I grew up, and I don't, you know, I don't want to put this on anyone, but I grew up, uh, you know, put the blame on on anyone, but I, I grew up ultimately with a sense of this burden on my shoulders that like I really wanted to be a good student of the Bible, I just did not know how to do it. And no one had ever showed me the right way to do it. They just told me that I needed to do it. And so I grew up with this expectation that this is something I need to do, but no one showed me the skill of how to do it. Because it is a tall task. I mean, just throw this out there right now. Anyone who says that reading the Bible is easy or simple, or that the Bible is easy and straightforward and simple, either is not reading it right or is lying to you to make you feel better about it or to trick you into doing it. Because it's just not. It's not easy and it's not straightforward and it's not simple. Um, it's It raises way more questions than I think that we often like to admit. And it's a lot more work than what we typically, if we're honest, I think want to, to put in. The question just becomes, do we do we want to do it? And I think we can rid ourselves at least of some of the frustration um, if we if we have some good uh, starting places and some good principles and um, and so I want to talk about some of those and and I want to start in a, in a very specific place like I said I think this is kind of my my thesis I would say of um, how I think we need to approach reading the Bible and how I think we need to to go about that and I'm going to start with an analogy I, I use this I actually wrote my master's thesis. Um, I didn't do an MDiv, um, so technically it was not a thesis, but it was what my degree's version of a thesis was. You know, the, the longest paper and the most important paper I had to write in my master's program, this is what I, I wrote it on. And I use this analogy there as well. Um, so I have three kids. My oldest two are five and three and have started to want more and more to want to do puzzles, and especially my five-year-old um, more complex puzzles. You know, she's not doing anything a thousand pieces or anything like that, but she's she's beyond the eight and 12 and 20 piece puzzles. So I think uh, not that long ago, we were working on a, like I think it was 35 or 36 pieces or something like that, right? So they're getting a little bit more complex. And so I was sitting down with her and we were, somebody had given her this puzzle. I think one of the grandmas had given her this puzzle and we're working on it. So we dump all the pieces out and she wants to start working on it. And 
after a few minutes, she's sitting there kind of struggling to put the pieces together, and she's got a random piece here and a random piece there, and but she's clearly starting to hit a wall. And so this is the first time I've really done this. Usually I just kind of let them uh, go at it and, and trial and error and figure it out, but now they're getting a little more complex. And so um, I said, oh, hey, listen, here's, and I pulled the box that the, the puzzle came in, the package that the puzzle came in, I set it in front of her, and I said, hey, Here's the, the number one rule about doing puzzles is you should always have the picture uh, of the end goal, of the end product in front of you. And so if you get stuck, you can look at the picture and you can know what this is supposed to look like in the end. And you can try and even find the puzzle, the, the piece that you have, kind of where it is and maybe see if you can find another piece that would look like it and, and it can give you a clue of like this is how this is supposed to get go together because this is what it's supposed to look like at the end and you can even find the corners and you can find the edges and you can kind of see what they look like and because you know what this is supposed to look like at the end you have a, a definition because this puzzle has edges and borders and corners it has definition and the picture has there's a certain picture that we're aiming for at the end of this and this is how you how you get started on, on a puzzle. This will really help you find those places of definition and then go ahead and you can fill in the picture and all of that kind of stuff. And I wanna, I wanna use that analogy uh, to talk about how I think we need to uh, think about uh, putting the pieces, to continue the analogy, to, to put the pieces of the scripture together. So if we think about reading the Bible as essentially is assembling a, a giant, obviously very complex puzzle. It, it doesn't solve all of the issues, but it can get us at least uh, headed really in, a, in a, I think, a good direction. And the question I want to ask then is, like I told my daughter, if we were to set a picture next to us, if you were to take your Bible as this box of puzzle pieces and, and open it up and you were to set a picture in front of you what this is supposed to look like at the end what's the image that you're looking for what's how will you know if you have put those pieces together properly in the right order in the right fashion what will the image come out to look like i want to say and, and suggest and i think this is a fundamental point of not only how to read the Bible, but really of our Christianity. This, I mean, to me, this is actually the point of our Christianity. That as Christians, we confess something very, very specific. We confess that the image on that box, the image of God, is the man Christ Jesus crucified and risen. That this crucified one is, Paul says, the image of the invisible God. He is the icon of the invisible God. That's the what you could translate that, that to. He's the, the icon of God. He's the image of God. The one who was visible has now become visible. The one that we could not see now is seen, right? And this is a, a big deal, especially in, in Jewish thought and Jewish idea, because one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not make an image. You will have no graven image. You won't have an icon. You cannot take the uncreated God and make him fit into some set of particularity. You cannot take that which is infinite and divine 
and holy and you know Yahweh and bring him down to some image made in the form of man or some other creature. Right? You can't do that. That's one of the, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not make any kind of image, any kind of graven image. That is until you get to Jesus because Jesus is not an image crafted by the hand of God. Jesus is God. He is the hand of God. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is Yahweh come amongst us. And so the the scandal of saying that Jesus is the image of God is it it doesn't break in the sense of go against, but it it goes over and through and deeper into the revelation of God than anything that we have had before. And so Jesus himself can say something like, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I mean, just scandalous statement. There's one theologian, he calls this the scandal of particularity, meaning that when we say that, that Jesus is God in the flesh, we are giving the uncreated, the invisible, the awesome, the holy, the mighty, we are giving him definition in particular definition. Another pastor that I know, he puts it like this. He says that God is like Jesus and that God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time that God has not been like Jesus. We have not always known that, but now we do. And I would throw in there for good measure that God will always be like Jesus. There won't ever be a time that God is not like Jesus. And this is central to our faith, that when we want to look at the image of God, we should first look at Jesus. And specifically, we'll get to this in a second, the crucified Jesus. But we can go through a couple scriptures here. John 1, obviously a very famous one. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But then John makes this statement that I think it's overlooked often. Down after first, you know, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But right in there he says that no one has ever seen God at any time. But he who was with God in the beginning has now declared him to us. He has made him known. He who is in the bosom of the Father, some translations say, has made him known to us. Now, any good Bible student will, will, will go to John and say, Time out, John. What do you mean that no one has ever seen God? Moses, it literally says in Exodus that Moses and the elders went up on the mountain and they saw God and they ate and they drank with him. Didn't Abraham eat with God beneath the trees of Mamre? I mean, that seems to be a pretty clear theophany. What about Ezekiel? He had said he had visions of God and chariots and fire and wheels. And he saw one like the Son of Man seated on the throne. And he was like fire from the waist up and like amber, which is just another color of fire from the waist down. Ezekiel, he had visions of God by the river Kibar. What about Daniel, who saw one like the Son of Man, and he saw the Almighty sitting on his throne, the Ancient of Days, and his a fire proceeded from his throne. Didn't he see God? And on and on. What about maybe the the other great one of the Old Testament, other than you know the Moses and and um, Ezekiel? What what about Isaiah? Isaiah Isaiah six. I saw the Lord. 
high and lifted up, seated in this temple, and the train of his robe filled the temple and the doorposts. They shook with the glory of God, and, and I was a man undone with unclean lips. Didn't he see God? And John has the, the theological audacity to say that no one, no one has ever seen God up until this point. Now, does John not know those scriptures? Of course he knows those scriptures. If, you just, if we read the Gospel of John, we see John, I mean, just thoroughly pulling on the scriptures, thoroughly pulling on, on what we call the Old Testament, just drawing from them left and right, basically in every line. So he, he knows them backwards and forwards. I think John is making a theological point to say that in comparison to what Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel compared to what all of them saw, it's as if no one has ever seen God because now we know exactly what God is like. That the law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. The word has become flesh, that which was in the beginning and spoken through the law and the prophets. The writer of Hebrews says that in those days that God spoke through his prophets, but now in these days he's speaking through his son. Now we know what God is like. Now we can see with particularity that God is like Jesus. Another theologian, I love it, that I love, he says it this way, that God is Christ-like and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. That God is Christ-like and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. And so as we're putting passages together, as we're reading the scripture, I would advocate that it is paramount and really the rule that we need to cling to more than anything else. I mean, you can get into tons of different ways and methods and rules about reading scripture. To me, the one that is non-negotiable for a Christian reading is to hold Jesus as the image on that box. That if we put together the, the, the scriptures in a way that the image of God that we get from that is looks different than what we see in Jesus, then we need to go back and try and rearrange those scriptures. Now, this isn't arbitrary rearranging. This is how do we do this in a faithful way, in a true way, in a way that is in line with, with the, the history of the church and the tradition of the church and is you know giving integrity to the text. And yes, yes, yes to all of those things. However, however, there are, there are ways to do all of those things and yet end up with a picture of God that is anything that looks at nothing like Jesus. And we have that history in the church as well. That people have put texts together in certain ways for thousands of years and the image of God on the other side looks nothing like Jesus. And so Jesus is the image. Jesus is the picture on the box. This, this now after I wrote this, and use this this metaphor kind of analogy in my master's paper. I actually ended up reading um, a work by an early church father named Irenaeus. By all accounts, one of the I don't know three, four, five, six most important theologians in church history. I don't know how you would actually come up with that list, but if you're ever coming up with a list of most important church theologians, Irenaeus is on it somewhere. Towering figure, um, especially. Uh, his work on against called against heresies, um, but in it he he actually uses this exact same metaphor. So this is you know, eighteen hundred 
years ago, 1900 years ago, and he uses the image of a, of a mosaic that we have to put the pieces and the tiles of the mosaic together to, to come to the correct image of the king, which is Jesus. Rather, we turn God into some image of, of, a, of a fox, of an animal, of something completely other than who he is. And he uses this the same image, which obviously made me really proud and pat myself on the back, if I could say so. But, um, you know, that I came up with a similar idea to someone like Irenaeus. And my, my point there is not to pat myself on the back here again. It's to say that this is how the church has always read the scriptures, that the church from the very beginning has realized what we have to do is we have to read in light of Jesus. So I like to say it, I like to say it this way when I'm teaching students, that wherever we are reading the Bible, we need to read from Jesus. So Jesus is our starting point, that we read from the assumption that God is like Jesus, that he has always been like Jesus, that there's never been a time he's not been like Jesus, and that he always will be like Jesus. So whether we're reading, you know, disturbing scenes in Joshua about the Canaanite conquest, or whether we're trying to figure out what's going on in Revelation about the second coming and future judgment, we have to start with the assumption, I believe, that God is like Jesus. I mean, this is the fundamental question, because I, I will say that, Actually, in a lot of my classes, I get more pushback on that point than on anything else. But than anything else that, that I'll say, I'll say that God is like Jesus, always has been and always will be, and people want to push back. And my response to that is, is simply this. Did Jesus fully reveal God or not? We all believe you, you can't be a Christian unless you believe that he revealed God. The real question I think that many of us have to answer is, do we believe that he fully revealed God? Or is there some other part of God that Jesus did not reveal to us? And this is, and you can see that this is actually, I think, what a lot of people believe. And you can see it in how they read the scripture. Most people read the scripture in terms of what they think God is like in this way. That in the first two chapters of Genesis, God was very good and kind and merciful. And he created everything and it was good. And then we sinned in Genesis 3. And then from Genesis 3 through most of the Old Testament, God is sometimes okay and merciful and whatever, but he's mainly angry. And the problem here is that we've sinned, we've broken his law, and now he is angry with humanity. So he sends the flood, so he kills these people, so he opens up the earth and swallows these people, so he sends armies and exile and plagues and locusts and the, the slaughter of the firstborn in Egypt and all these things because God is angry. And then we get to Jesus and Jesus reveals something that God is kind and merciful and loving and forgiving. And he dies for all those people that he was actually angry with. And so the angry God gets placated by the, the nice and merciful Jesus. And so he satisfies his wrath. And now God's not angry at us anymore. Unless you don't believe in him, then he's still angry at you. But now he's, he's nice to us again. And we're in this age now. We have the spirit and we have nice, kind Jesus. But there's coming a time when Jesus is going to come again. And this little saying that I grew up with, he, he came the first time like a lamb and he's going to come the second time like a lion. And he's going to come back and he's going to pour out his wrath upon all the people that, that rejected him. And he's going to pour out his anger and his wrath. And we're going to end. The end is, the end is, is we're back to mainly anger. Because most people will reject Jesus. So most of the earth is going to end up with angry God at the end. And so most people read the Bible as nice God, angry God, nice Jesus, angry Jesus. And it's this constant 
changing with, you know, some string of mercy running through, but it's mainly nice, angry, nice, angry. And to that, I would just want to say, did Jesus fully reveal God or not? I mean, it, we have to just say yes or no. Either there is something to God that Jesus did not reveal, or we have to say that God is like Jesus and that God dies for his enemies rather than kill them. Now, we'll, we can talk about issues of judgment, and we will in, in a future episode here, of how do we understand then those things? How do we read those texts? Actually, the, the, uh, the deep dive episode I want to do in this series is I want to go through a couple of Old Testament, primarily Old Testament stories, and look at how would we read these in light of Jesus. So here's what I would say. Jesus is the image on the box. But the image also on the box also has definition. And I'll end, end with this. There are also edges and corners. There's, there's straight lines. There's, there's parts of, of clear particularity. And I would say that that would be analogous to the crucifixion and resurrection. That it's the Jesus that we're talking about is this one, this crucified one. It's this crucified lamb. It's this, I mean, so we want to talk about Revelation when we get to the end and we get to Revelation. You know, again, I always heard this phrase, he came the first time like a lion, he's going to come the second time, or he came the first time like a lamb, he's going to come the second time like a lion. The irony of that statement is, is it completely flips the book of Revelation around. John, he hears this sound as if it's, you know, behind him and the angel says behold the lion of the tribe of judah and he turns expecting to see a lion and what does he see he sees a slain lamb standing a lamb that had died and had rose again so he expects to see the lion and he he, he turns and actually sees the slain and risen lamb and so the other thing that the church has always done the church has always said that the cross is the high point of the revelation of who God is and what he's like. It's the crescendo. It's the climax. I mean, John clearly says it in, in his gospel in John 14. When Jesus prays, this is my hour of glorification. This is it. The cross is the way in which God is glorified. Not only that he is glorified, John says this is his glory. This is the glory of God to die for enemies, to die for the world, to lay down his life for other, to love those who have not loved him. That is the glory of God. That is the power of God. That is the revelation of God. That is the word of God to us. And so the, the, the picture on the box is the man Christ Jesus and the edges and the corners of that box. The most defined portion of that picture is the cross and the resurrection. That it's not just Jesus in general. It's the crucified and risen lamb. It's the one who was slain and is now alive. It's the one who was dead and was buried and has now been raised and ascended. It's that Jesus. It's that Jesus that the church has always said is the one we believe. We believe in one God and Father and in one Lord Jesus Christ who is born of the Virgin Mary and suffered and died 
under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, was buried. And I mean, right, the, the creeds, this is what they all speak of because this is the image of God. And so as we read the scriptures, as we wrestle with the text, keep your eyes on the crucified and risen Jesus. And at the end of the day, when we're wrestling through what does this mean or that mean or what does this say about God or what does that say about God, Jesus gets to be the final arbiter. Jesus gets to he's the word of God. He's the word of God to us. Not against the Bible, but he says in Luke 24 that all of these, this is why I'm calling this series reading on the road to Emmaus, that all of these scriptures, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they speak of me, they testify of me. That if you read them rightly, you should not be surprised that I died. You should not be surprised that I was crucified and have risen again because that is what they, right? Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Moses, he says in John 5, wrote about me. I mean, think about that. He, Jesus says in John 5, Moses wrote about me. What is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy about? Moses wrote about me. He's about, about Jesus. Exodus is not just about how the people got out of Egypt. Exodus is about Jesus. Deuteronomy is not just about the blessings and the cursings and the, the retelling of the law. It's about Jesus. Genesis is not just about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis is about Jesus. That if we, and if we don't find Jesus there, if we don't find the crucified and risen Jesus there, then we need to keep reading and we need to keep digging and we need to keep asking. And so what I want to do in the next episode is I actually want to look at a couple examples and I want to look at some hard examples. So what would be maybe some difficult examples in how we can, uh, how we can maybe do this. But for now, we'll, we'll, we'll pause the conversation there and uh, we'll see you guys again next time as we continue to talk about the Bible and how to read it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you hit the subscribe button uh, if you have not already done so. Share this with friends. If, if this is something that you uh, have struggled with or you know people that have, have struggled with of how to read the Bible, uh, go ahead and share this. And like always in the description uh, below, you can my email is there. You can shoot me uh, an email. There's also a link that you can leave a, an audio voicemail for me. And if it's a good question, I'll actually just throw the audio into a future episode and uh, we can keep the dialogue going that way. So thanks so much for listening and we'll see you guys next time.